Welcome to another edition of Reshaping America. This is your host, Kurt Flewelling. Well, we're going to do a little follow-up on the bulk of uh, the show last week, which was almost exclusively dedicated to Raphael Warnock, Senate candidate down in Georgia, Reverend, strangely enough, Raphael Warnock. Um, we'll do a little follow-up on some things that have happened since last week's show. Talk about election reform a little bit. Peter Navarro has an article chronicling uh, just a, a, a summary report of all the craziness that has gone on as far as elections are concerned. And uh, interesting article about Republicans now pivoting, um, kind of moving on from we feel Trump won to what are we going to do for the next two to four years? And uh, lastly, I did see some a little bit of a furor about Jill Biden being referred to as a doctor, which she does have a doctorate. So um, we will discuss that. Uh, since last week, um, the polls have uh, opened up a little bit. Uh, they certainly are very, very tight in Georgia. And as you all know, the balance of the United States Senate um, is pretty much um, going to be dictated by what happens down in Georgia. If it is a 50-50 tie, then Kamala Harris will break any substantive uh, ties that go forward. But if the polls hold up and they are about... Uh, they're about three weeks um, out from their runoff election or their uh, election in January. Um, Mr. Ossoff, who is going against uh, Mr. Purdue, is up about 51 to 48 with 1% undecided. And as we uh, chronicled pretty uh, in depth, um, in an in depth manner last week, Raphael Warnock uh, is going against Republican uh, Kelly Loeffler. And Senator Loeffler is up 51-48 as well with 1% undecided. So as, as much as um, these candidates, oddly enough, are very different, Ossoff is a Jewish gentleman and Reverend Warnock has said some rather anti-Semitic uh, things. The two of them have kind of been joined at the hip campaigning together which um, is just very odd. Only in the Democrat Party would you see something that strange. But um, it appears that the uh, a very tight race is widening a little bit. But again, as I've chronicled on this show several times, um, Georgia, by anyone's opinion that has any degree of common sense, is not a blue state. Uh, you may think, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams came pretty close to being the governor a few years ago. Uh, it is presumed that Joe Biden won the state of Georgia. These, um, the latter, it just did not happen. Um, it, Georgia is a clearly a red state. Is um, the city of Atlanta and surrounding areas steeped with um, liberal Democrats and widespread corruption. Yes, indeed, uh, it is. But in totality, Georgia is a red state. Now, if election elections were as tight as they should be, 
and the processes were as tight as they should be, this should be pretty much of a slam dunk in a runoff election. The Republicans should pretty easily win 55 to 45. But in an era of uh, COVID-19, mail-in ballots, all sorts of craziness and fraud, we're not checking signatures on and on and on and on. <coughs> Excuse me. Anything is indeed possible. So um, as one of these articles refers to, the, the, um, the full weight of the Republican Party is now bearing down on these two Democrat candidates in a pretty historically red state. So we shall see. Um, but uh, I did want to, you know, I, I, I alluded to some anti-Semitic ramblings that uh, Raphael Warnock um, uttered. And for those of you that did not tune in last week, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, um, who, and I use that term extraordinarily loosely, we, we went into painstaking detail on how he um, weighs in on the issues of the day, um, many of which are just so antithetical to the word of God. I, I don't even know where to begin, but I attempted last week to to kind of lay that out, not just to assail Raphael Warnock, but to give you fair warning that uh, social justice leftists and Christian left um, individuals um, love people like Raphael Warnock, and uh, they are used f um, for evil uh, historically um, quite well. And I'm going to go into um, a little bit of history on how people with some really, really evil intent have used um, clergy in the past. And as it, as it pertains to Raphael Warnock, African-American clergy, to do their evil, evil bidding. And it's really horribly distasteful, but it is um, it is something that the masses have to be educated on, and I will attempt to do that. But this, this first article here um, pretty clearly says that Raphael Warnock's um, uh, anti-setup, excuse me, anti-Semitic uh, praises for the Reverend Louis Farrakhan in and of itself disqualifies him for Senate service. Now, add to that the myriad of things that we went over last week, and I hope and I pray that uh, Mr. Warnock does not prevail against Kelly Loeffler. But uh, I'll just read you a little bit of the article. It says, Warnock praised uh, Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam in a public forum just a few years ago, declaring that we've needed the witness of the Nation of Islam because the Jesus Christ believing brand of Christianity was, in fact, a slave religion, the white man's religion, as Warnock put it. Um, the divisiveness of this by people presumably in the body of Christ, and I, I use the word presumably with some big quotes around it, and um, others who hate the word of God, um, Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam, um, teaming together is just really straight from the pit of hell, and it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, Reverend Warnock goes on to say, it's a, it's a voice that has been important even for the development of black theology because it was the black Muslims who challenged black preachers 
and said that you are promulgating the white man's religion. That's a slave religion. You're telling people to focus on heaven. Meanwhile, they're catching hell. We've needed the witness of the nation of Islam in a real sense to put a fire under us and keep us honest about the meaning of the proclamation coming from our pulpits. This is really chilling stuff and you could dissect every sentence there and um, and, and just have a field day with Reverend Warnock. And, and I really, I, I refrain from using that word, Reverend, because he is in no shape, manner or form, in my estimation, worthy of that moniker. Um, anybody, I mean, the, the, the statement alone, we've needed the witness of the nation of Islam. That in and of itself is, is just is just profoundly insane. The nation of Islam hates Jews. Jesus Christ is Jewish. He is the king of the Jews. Right there, we could just put a period on it and go on to the next issue. So any purported man of Christ in a pulpit saying that we have needed the the witness of the nation of Islam is is insane and, and I really wish I could uh, slice that any other way but I cannot so um, that's just another you know little example we went into uh, some pretty painstaking detail last week about um, Reverend Warnock um, and, and how problematic it is to have the social justice left do the bidding of the evil one. And they most people um, that do this bidding are very unwittingly doing it. But um, it has been going on and it has been going on for centuries, if you will. Um, I did not read this last week, but I will. Um, there is a chapter in my book, Do We Value Life, on um, Margaret Sanger, the um, the person um, that founded Planned Parenthood, um, the uh, Hillary Clinton, um, who says she relies on her Methodist faith quite often when conducting herself and and um, her daily actions as a, as a politician, as it were, years ago, um, got the coveted Margaret Sanger Award. Um, I'm not going to do a whole show on Margaret Sanger. It would be very disturbing. But um, I will read you a little bit um, about a quote Margaret Sanger made, and she has made several uh quotes derogatory to African-Americans and um, make no mistake, Planned Parenthood was um, was a eugenic idea to, um, as Margaret Sanger says, um, uh, weed out undesirables. Um, and in her opinion, African-Americans were um, along with many others uh, undesirable. So this is a quote from Margaret Sanger. We do not want the word to go out there. Uh, we do not we that we want to exterminate the Negro population, even though that was her expressed desire. But she was intelligent enough to know that even in the 1930s, where 
we did live in a pretty racist society in the United States of America and most other parts of the world as well. Um, she knew it would be ghoulish and bad for business if their um, actual um, notions were were made public of, of why they wanted to foster abortion. So, um, and, and the, re the reason I'm reading this is it dovetails into um, people like um, Raphael Warnock, who self-proclaimed pro-choice reverend, um, which is, is so oxymoronic, I don't know where to begin, but I'm going to quote um, and, and talk a little bit about Margaret Sanger as it pertains to people like Reverend Warnock. Uh, Mrs. Sanger, a renowned eugenicist, knew it was necessary to conceal her ideologies from the general public when embarking on her mission to provide, and I have this in quotes in my book, reproductive health care to women of America. She knew that she needed to be shrewd when dealing with potentially distrustful African-American women who were somewhat apprehensive about the concept of birth control. Let us stop right there. In a culture that was admittedly very racist in the United States of America, um, you have very few friends if you are a black person in the 1930s in the United States of America. You have your God and you have your family. Um, these are two entities that... Um, Marxists, statists, um, evil people, if you will, try to eradicate in the life of any individual to squelch out their freedom, their liberty, and make them a slave to the government. So, um, heretofore in the 30s, if you had very few friends outside of your family and your God, that's where you turned, and that's where you should turn. Um, Mrs. Sanger understood that African Americans uh, as a culture, at, at least at that time, and sadly not quite as much today, were very devoutly religious people. And she understood um, that they would be a little queasy with killing babies inside their stomachs, okay? So uh, what did this ghoulish individual do? She recruited um, people to help her with her mission. So I go on. It says, Mrs. Sanger stated that we should hire three or four, her words, not mine, colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. If the ultimate goal of the extermination of black people started to become apparent to these women, Mrs. Sanger states that the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to their more rebellious members. Some things never change. I, I conclude this paragraph here. As many black pastors either look the other way or unbelievably support um, this racist organization that Mrs. Sanger founded. So why do I read that? Um, firstly, it's it's a factoid that I did not know until I did my research, and many of you probably did not know. But 
Um, Mrs. Sanger, even though no respecter of, of black men and women or their intellect or their just about anything, did know that they did have a devout faith uh, as a culture. Um, because who else were they going to turn to? Everywhere you turned in the 1930s, um, you were staring down the barrel of racism. So if you're black in the 1930s, probably a pretty good idea to stick with your family and your God. So she knew that was the case. And she knew if these black women were a little queasy about this newfound abortion thing, the recruitment of um, black pastors, this is unbelievable that I'm saying this, black pastors to allay their fears and tell them this is all right. Now, you really don't have to be too smart, too devout. You don't have to be steeped in Christ to pretty much understand that when your belly is uh, has a baby in it and you go to some back room and somebody says, I'm going to take that baby out and kill it, you really don't have to have a lot going on intellectually or spiritually to know this probably isn't something that the God up in heaven is down with or cool with. Um, and it must be even further more bizarre to you if you have some degree of trepidation that a man of the cloth would come in and allay your fears and say, that's okay. So as crazy as that is to get your head around and as ghoulish as that is, I contend the same things are still happening today. When you have a pastor that is pretty darn close to being a United States Senator that tweets out, I am a pro-choice pastor, how is that any different than, than the um, black pastor in the 1930s that was recruited to nudge African-American women um, over to the other side of killing their babies when they had some trepidation about it. Absolutely ghoulish, absolutely straight from the pit of hell. And it's not a leap for anybody that may not be religious or politically savvy or even intelligent to understand that this is not right. It is wrong. And I know we don't hear those words right and wrong too often anymore, but, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I did beat the pony with, um, with, uh, Reverend Warnock last week, but I know I did not get to that little factoid about Margaret Sanger and, um, how she recruited black pastors. And, um, sadly, some things never change. So if you are hearing my voice in the great state of Georgia, um, please keep this in mind that this, this man does not deserve to be in the United States Senate. He does not deserve to be in a pulpit anywhere in America. Um, and as much as the congregants in his um, church may be ignorant or just want to see what they want to see or blinded, um, they're not the primary problem. And even um, Reverend Warnock is not the primary problem. Um, the elders and the deacons in that church that allow this man to do this and allow pastors in many pulpits across the country to do this have blood on their hands in, in this instance quite literally 
And again, as a culture, if we look at the Christian left, if you will, as just another viable alternative. You got the Christian right, you got the Christian left, your interpretation of the Bible is whatever you think it is, it's all good. Um, that blasé, ignorant attitude of, of the Word of God is why the Christian left is growing and why churches are popping up left, right, and crazy and, and their, their congregants are, uh, congregations are growing because this is a theology where you can just basically make it up as you go along and nobody's going to step on your toes and nobody's going to offend you. So I'll just, you know, end with this. The irony that this reverend is embracing abortion, is embracing a flaming anti-Semite like Louis Farrakhan, and then is um, chastising and going after with both barrels the police, Republicans, and, and many other people in society that, that um, with, with such vitriol and with... Um, and that that message is being just embraced is just is is i'm going to be kind it, there has to be a very large degree of colossal ignorance out there for any christian that would vote for somebody like this and and even moreover someone that would go to a church where craziness is spewed and then um things that are uh, egregious offenses to the word of god are overlooked. So we're going to, um, we're going to put a wrap on, uh, Reverend Warnock, um, in three weeks. I pray that he goes away and he is not elected to the United States Senate. And, um, full disclosure, many of new listeners, I am not a Republican. I am not a Democrat, but, um, I do feel that a uh, Republican plurality of 58 to 48 in the Senate would be a, um, a very necessary firewall to many of the radical ideas that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and um, an ever-dwindling uh, Democrat majority in the House may have in store for the United States of America. So it's very important that these two Republicans win in Georgia, and I pray that they do. Let us go on to the next article here. Um, this is Peter Navarro in the Trump administration releases a, um, a, a very large 36 page comprehensive report, um, alleging wide scale, uh, election fraud that in his terms is more than sufficient to swing victory to Trump. And this says the director of the office of trade and manufacturing policy, Peter Navarro, uh, if you've ever heard this guy on cable TV, he's a very bright individual. He's very quick, sharp, and he gets it. Um, he published a lengthy report Thursday outlining several examples of voting irregularities that are more than sufficient to swing the outcome of the election of president in in President Trump's favor. The 36 page report assesses the fairness and integrity of the 2020 presidential election by examining six dimensions of alleged election excuse me um, irregularities across six key battleground states and concludes that patterns of election irregularities 
are so consistent across the six battleground states that they suggest a coordinated strategy to, if not steal the election, strategically game the election process in such a way as to unfairly tilt the playing field in favor of Biden-Harris. These six dimensions of voting irregularities in the report include outright voter fraud, ballot mishandling, contestable process fouls, equal protection clause violations, voting machine irregularities, and significant statistical anomalies. Now, let me stop right there. Um, At this point, as every day goes by, uh, as we get closer to the um, inauguration in less than a month here, um, more and more people on the Republican side of the aisle are saying, well, it's time for Donald Trump to move over. Um, his numerous and people on his behalf, their numerous um, challenges in court have been summarily been rejected by judges all across the country and the Supreme Court as well. That is not an accurate statement. Um, Rejected is probably a strong word. Uh, Many have um, have said that the uh, uh, suits, if you will, um, do not lack merit. They do have merit, but they, in one way or another, have either declined to pursue it, um, as, as is the case with the Supreme Court, or there's many other reasons that they feel that um, evidence may be insufficient, but the, the allegation that this, that, or the other has gone on is not been dismissed um, summarily, as some would tell you that it has. So, and in that instance, I think it is pretty much no more complicated than there are a lot of people in um, local municipalities, regional municipalities, federal courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court that um, are not huge Donald Trump fans. Now, that should not really make a hill of difference as Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, right? But in reality, we are uh, all human beings and love him or hate him. Um, and again, I am not a, a, um, a Trump devotee as many others are, but I certainly see the many good things that he has done in the last four years. But, um, I think this is a pretty accurate statement, even among um, honest Trump devotees. Donald Trump is not a real sympathetic figure. Um, Part of what makes Donald Trump a very unique politician and a very effective leader is the fact that he angers people and he holds people's feet to the fire. And as I've said a thousand times, um, they do not hate Donald Trump because he's a conservative. They they hate Donald Trump because he fights. Um, they, meaning um, leftists, moderate Republicans and Democrats and ignorant people and apathetic people and apolitical people all rolled into one, you know, nice pot of soup here. They look at Donald Trump and a lot of people don't like him because he's bombastic and he fights um, Democrats in particular. They like their Republicans to sit up, sit down and shut up. 
we will allow you, even if we're in the minority, strangely enough, speaking on the behalf of Democrats here, we will allow you to rail at the chicken barbecue or the VFW um, town hall meeting or some press conference at Fox or whatever. We will allow you to say that you are for conservative principles. But when it comes time to voting for them, you better not do it. You better just fake out your constituents and uh, we'll take it from there. So we'll let you get this crap off your chest. But when it comes to fighting us on policy or legislation, um, Democrats operate as if they're in the majority, if they have a uh, huge plurality or if they're in the serious minority. Democrats just fight. That's all they do. And along comes Donald Trump, who fights like they do. And they punch and then he punch and they punch again and then he punches back. And they don't like that. The media is used to rolling Republicans or conservatives and um, they will allow a few loudmouths to not only say what they say, but actually back it up with um, conservative governance or conservative legislation. But by and large, they don't want a lot of uppity Republicans. And for that matter, there's a lot of Republicans that don't like uppity Republicans. So where I'm going with all this is Donald Trump is not the most sympathetic figure to a lot of people. And so there are people in positions that could be helping Donald Trump big time, um, either on a daily basis with press conferences or in the judiciary at the state level or uh, in, in state legislatures across the country, and particularly in those six states or um, in the Supreme Court. There are people that they are not too sad that Donald Trump is going to go off into that good night. So... Um, when we see a comprehensive report like this, what, what does this tell us? What, what does it do? You know, we're running out of time as far as doing anything legitimate about what happened to Donald Trump on election day, November 3rd. Um, and I think Donald Trump in the back of his mind knows this, but he is a fighter a and B he is probably setting himself up for a return in 2024. Um, I think a tertiary byproduct of all this, and I may offend some by saying this, I don't think it's something that is a primary reason for Donald Trump to be doing this. I think he's, he's a pretty self-serving guy and people take offense to that, but that's just my assessment. But a tertiary byproduct of all this fighting right to the end is that if we play our cards right and pay attention to this, we have two to four years, four years for a general election, two for some of the very important, um, you know, uh, legislative uh, battles in two years um, in elections. We have some time to jump on this election reform thing. And by painstakingly going through all this, um, it may not get Donald Trump to where he wants to get to or where he should get to, because I feel that there was just tons of fraud in at least seven states that could have clearly um, indicated that Donald Trump won in a landslide rather than lost. But um, what this does 
is it sets us up to investigate this and change this. And um, fortunately, there is a very large plurality of state houses uh, throughout the country, probably, you know, at least 30 of the 50 states. And I think it may be even 32 of the state legislatures are Republican. And many of those states happen to be governed by Republicans. And that that's really where a lot of this um, gets changed. Now, um, do I think that the state legislatures got really steamrolled by um, the judiciary, particularly in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the governor in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? Yes, I do. But when you're talking about a very short, finite period of time to do all this, you know, basically two months, November to January, it's very difficult to take a complex issue. And the, the fraud was so, as um, as Mr. Navarro chronicles, so spread out in so many areas that it, it's very difficult to synthesize this, put together um, a, a cogent argument that most people can understand and fix this all in a two-month period of time. So Donald Trump is awarded what I believe he rightly earned, which is a second term as president. However, two to four years is a fair amount of time. And my hope and my prayer is, and I just, I see it with some Republicans and maybe even some Democrats. I don't see it with a lot of others. That election reform is their primary concern each and every day of their um, careers as politician, if you want to call politics a career. COVID-19 is important. Tax cuts are important. The China threat is important. Big tech, um, which big tech is a big problem as it pertains to election reform as well. But um, all of those things are very important. But the, the subject of election reform and fraud and across many of these areas is literally what has to be the primary goal of every conservative politician. Because if it's not, our republic cannot stand. Uh, if you don't have free and fair elections, you basically have a third world um, dictatorship like we have in many parts of the world. Um, and COVID-19 and all the power grabs associated with it really played very nicely into the hands of people that are not real concerned with free and fair elections. But COVID-19 is not going to go on forever. And this issue has to be addressed. And first and foremost, it has to be addressed in, um, in state legislatures. But if it is, uh, if it is not, then in the words of uh, Lindsey Graham and many others, Republicans will never win an election again. So this is something that if you're a moderate Republican or somebody, a never Trumper or somebody that hates Donald Trump, um, 
you really should notice this and take uh, take note of this. And as I said on one of my shows, you know, there's a, and particularly in this area where I live in suburban Philadelphia, um, there are a lot of moderate Republicans that win elections 51 to 49 or 50.5 to 49.5. And if you don't think those elections can can be stolen uh, in the drop of a hat, with all sorts of fraud and corruption, you're you're kidding yourself. So this is not, you know, you are deluding yourself if if you think these individuals that engaged in this craziness um, are going to stop just because they got rid of Donald Trump. You have another screw loose. Um, first and foremost, they get up every morning and see how many Republicans they can destroy. How many Republicans? Can they supplant from their position and add to, um, you know, uh, to making uh, Democrat pluralities in state houses and governorships and the Congress and and the White House? So um, this is something that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed yesterday. So Mr. Navarro goes through um, a whole list of things. I'm not going to, you know, have time to to go into them here, but um it, it, it may not be to get Donald Trump uh, in the White House uh, in, in or, or to stay in the White House. It may be greasing the skids, but uh, this has to be addressed. Next article is Republicans pivot to election reform um, in, you know, uh, after the 2020 election has um, has come and gone. So this this article says Republicans are beginning to shift their 2020 presidential election focus away from directly contesting the results towards reforming and reinforcing election laws for the future days after the Electoral College um, just recently cast a majority of its votes for Democrat Joe Biden as president elect. President Trump has continued to contest the results in several closely fought battleground states and has yet to concede the presidential race alleging voter fraud swung the results against him. And we go into what uh, Senator Ron Johnson, who's a very bright guy um, uh, from Wisconsin, he said this hearing should not be controversial. This is a hearing on election reform. Um in a Wednesday Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs uh, Committee meeting, the featured testimony about alleged voting irregularities. Um, a large percentage of the American public does not believe the November election results are legitimate. This is not a sustainable state of affairs in our democratic republic. Um, true. Johnson had already told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel the day before, I haven't seen anything that would convince me that the results, the overall national result, would be overturned. That's not a true statement. That's a political statement. And I do like um, Ron Johnson quite a bit. I think if he is pivoting toward election reform, I think that's a political move to um, to not look like a, uh, a Trump sycophant and to focus on the future and the, uh, the um, irregularities going forward, probably knowing full well that um, with all these um, def uh, defeats or presumed defeats in the legal system, there's not much he can do and there's not much to win by 
making a statement contrary to that, but that statement at face value um, does not make any sense. I have not seen anything that would convince me that the results, the overall national result would be overturned. That's... um, that is for the digestion of the general public that doesn't, you know, dissect these things, um, perhaps like you and I do. So he continues. He also indicated that he would not block the congressional certification of the electoral vote in January, paving the way for Biden to take office later that month. Again, um, just read into that. That is a let's move on philosophy. Let's live to fight another day. Let's not die on this hill. The election in many ways was stolen and only, and the only way it will be fixed is um, in the future reinforcing the laws, said Senator Rand Paul. So Senator Rand Paul, who's not chairing this um, uh, committee meeting, definitely went a little further. He's, um, you know, he's fairly popular in Kentucky. He is pretty much, uh, although a libertarian, um, somebody that uh, you can really count on to be on the side of truth um, and uh, Christian values, if you will. Uh, And so Senator Paul goes on a little, uh, cuts a little deeper and in my estimation, a little bit more accurate with a statement that um, the election was in many ways stolen. And he was speaking at the same hearing. He emphasized uh, lax enforcement of absentee ballot requirements, outdated voter rolls, and reports of dead people voting. And that's just three of of 20 problems. And um, this is why this is going to take time. If, If each and every election from dog catcher up to president was pretty sound if the voting mechanisms were pretty much the same from municipality to municipality, state to state. And there was one profound glitch as far as, uh, oh, I don't know, let's just say um, Dominion voting machines. Then it, it, it might be harder and less time consume or, or easier and less time consuming to get your head around it and, and try to fix it or try to point to the corruption involved but but when you have voter fraud on such a mass uh, level uh, just a wide scale level you're not going to make that argument digestible understandable and fix that in a two-month period of time from november to the time that our next president is sworn in and that is quite apparent but that does not mean that we should not try now that we have two to four years um, to get this right. So Senator Paul says some strong things. Um, the article goes on to say courts have mostly tossed lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign and its allies alleging widespread irregularities. The Justice Department, under the leadership of soon-to-be former Attorney General William Barr, has said it is not uncovered fraud sufficient to alter the outcome of the election. Let's just stop there. Regardless of it not altering the election, it needs to be um, investigated. It needs to be uh, cried out from the top of the roof that this is wrong and this will not stand and we will categorically change this process and all the loopholes and illegalities that have gone on um, in our past election. Uh, And you can do that 
but I, I think when people make the comment like I have not or we have not uncovered fraud sufficient enough to alter the outcome of the election, I think that's kind of um, to the average person that doesn't pay attention to these things. That's almost taken as if man, there's nothing to see here. Fraud kind of happens and let's just move on. And and I think that is a, a, a gross oversimplification of, of a very widespread problem. Um, article goes on to say many Republicans do not like the ballot harvesting that took place in a number of states. As an unprecedented number of people voted by mail due to the pandemic, they are also concerned that COVID-19 protocols were used to limit the access of GOP poll workers and skirt laws, setting deadlines for absentee ballots to be received, among other issues. Very true. They would like to raise these concerns in some cases without claiming they necessarily decided the election, while acknowledging many of their voters agree with Trump on this topic. Um how quickly or to what degree a serious election reform push happens is directly correlated to how loudly and how often President Trump stays on this rigged election topic after January 20th, said Nicholas Everhart, a Republican strategist. While President Trump has tapped into base Republicans' institutional mistrust and openness to believing we are all part of a giant conspiracy, the truth is, if he stops beating that drum, the more it's going to dissipate and grow dormant. So here is the rub. Here is the conundrum, and I've read many articles about this. What does Donald Trump do? And again, offensive to some of my listeners, I don't care. Um, Donald Trump is out for Donald Trump. And if the election process and liberty and freedom and conservatism all get forwarded um, by whatever agenda he has, that is a secondary byproduct. Donald Trump wants to be president, uh, or excuse me, wants to be in the White House again for another four years. So this is the conundrum, and I have, I have read some interesting articles on this. Does he continue to beat the uh, conspiracy theory drum? This is a coordinated effort for the last six months on a whole host of fronts by a whole host of individuals. And um, does he do that and risk the very necessary 10% of voters out there, probably more, that are going to see him as a sore loser or somebody that's um, experiencing sour grapes here? Um, again, we've said this on the show several times. He will never lose that solid 40% that whatever he does, they will love and adore the guy. But you're not going to get elected a president in 2024 with 40% of the vote. And you may not get elected with um, 50, 52, 53% of the vote um, if the wide scale corruption continues. So Donald Trump, and, and this is where his his business acumen probably does help him. Um, he's got to dance this very fine line of really setting up that this election was stolen right up until the time he leaves, but probably 
for the last couple of weeks of his administration in January, he has to start backing off, sounding magnanimous, sounding um, like a stand-up guy, um, and, and saying some conciliatory things um, to uh, Joe Biden and Democrats in general, because if he doesn't, he's just going to look like a crazy person that is just, um, you know, uh, I got robbed and I'm going to continue to cry that I got robbed for the next four years. Um, I think he's smart enough not to do that. I think there is a time where um, he realizes, uh, and it probably has come and gone, and he's just not doing it publicly. He realizes he is not going to be reelected, um, at least um, on paper, and he is going to have to start shifting into a gracious loser type of a role. So it is interesting if his goals and aspirations, he's a very vigorous 74-year-old, he'll be the age of Joe Biden in 2024, um, if he does that. And I think he's, um, as, as much as he has built himself as not a politician, I think he has developed into a pretty good politician. So I think you'll see that. Um, you never know. Um, and we'll see what transpires in the next year. And that will give you a lot of indication as to what Donald Trump's future aspirations will be. Um, the jockeying starts early and often, as you know, and there are a number of Republicans that um, have uh, out and out said that they want to be president in 2024 and they see Donald Trump as vulnerable, uh, someone that um, enough people do not like that they could take a run at this. Many of them are um, probably the wrong person for the job simply because they fit into that Republican category that I alluded to early in the show. Let's not make any waves. Let's be Democrat light. Let's um, keep the nonsense going. And let's just return to the old days where Republicans got slapped around and um, basically were a little bit better on the uh, ideological continuum than Democrats, but not much. And there's a fair amount of people that want to be president that are going to be in that category. Um, so we shall see. But... Um, this article says, um, as I said before, that the Republicans, if they're smart, really have to pivot um, to uh, a, a position where we got to fix this thing rather than um, not fix this thing. And this is, um, yeah, this is the article that I was alluding to before where it says Trump has a dilemma. And he, you know, um, the, the author of this article does not know where he is going to go. But um, his dilemma is when does he stop uh, beating that drum that I got robbed? Um, and uh, only time will tell. Um, in the waning minutes of the show here, I, I do want to get to uh, something I read. This was... Um, this was about... Um, Joe Biden's wife, Dr. Um, Jill Biden. And I refer to her as doctor because that was the big, um, a big controversy in the wall street journal, 
Um, this article says um, Jill Biden pushes back on criticism. Um, and she says one of the things she is most proud of is her doctorate degree. Uh, Jill Biden, the soon to be first lady, responded to some of her critics after she was attacked over her uh, preference to be called Dr. Biden. And we all know people that have a doctorate uh, that are not MDs or DMDs or veterinary doctors that uh, we would never know if they have a doctorate because they just don't want to be called doctor. And there's other people that can't wait to be called doctor and they put doctor this and doctor that on everything. So I don't have a big problem with it, but obviously the Wall Street Journal does. It says Biden, who obtained a doctoral degree in education for the University of Delaware in 2007, responded to the attacks Thursday night during an interview alongside her husband. Yeah, that was such a surprise, she said, when asked if she had a reaction to those who don't think she should be referred to as doctor. Biden's comments came in response to a Wall Street Journal op-ed written by Joseph Epstein in which his central premise was that she should not go by the word uh, the moniker doctor because that title should refer to medical professionals and not people with doctorate degrees. Critics, including those within the Biden's inner circle, were quick to denounce the article as sexist and condescending. Well, it may be condescending. I don't know about sexist. I did not read the article, but um, it was really the tone of it that I think that, you know, he called me kiddo, she added, pointing out one of Epstein's references to her. One of the things I am most proud of is my doctorate. I mean, I work so hard for it. And, you know, Joe came when I defended my thesis. Look at all the people who came out in support of me. Um, she says the future first lady continued. I am so grateful. And I was just overwhelmed by how gracious people were towards me. Um, let me just be kind here. The waning minutes of the show. Uh, the Bidens have uh, just a long pedigree of really things that they should be concerned about. Um, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of anybody that wants to pay attention to right and wrong. And, um, you know, uh, if, if Jill Biden wants to call herself doctor, I certainly have no problem with it. She earned her doctorate. The article goes on to say that, um, you know, her uh, doctoral thesis was trash and, and just, um, just insulting things I'm not going to glorify. But um, again, uh, there, there will be, mark my words, enough things in the next four years to, um, to discuss with the Bidens and their family that are a little bit more important than um, should Jill Biden be called Dr. Biden or not. And um, we will just leave it at that. This is Reshaping America. Kurt Flewelling, you have a great day.